I've reported other people's stories for a long time, confronting people in power. But behind this broadcast voice, I've hidden my greatest secret. I was in an abusive marriage. It lasted a year, but it changed my life. Part of me always blamed myself for what happened, and I've lived with the shame. So many of us live like this. It's time we change that. I'm Anna Maria Tremonti. Welcome to Paradise is my story. Available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. I'm Dr. Brian Goldman. This is White Coat Blackheart. Hello. Hi, I'm Brian. I'm Blake. And this is Hi, Blake. We're just with two clients right now, but you can come <laughs> Sure. Back. Okay. Did you want me to bring the... That's Blake Lotz, an outreach support worker. I will bring those. <laughs> Sorry. We also have a very small office. <laughs> Sorry to, like, be so hectic on our intro here. Blake's but. teammate, Tabitha Plesik, is an overdose prevention and response nurse. From a storage room, they gather clothing and hygiene products, typical stuff for a client named Marie, who lives on the streets in Edmonton. By the way, that's where we happen to be this week. So it sounds like a situation that you're not unfamiliar with. No, it happens a lot because our service is open till 7, and all the other services kind of stop at like 4.30 here, so we're the last people. And we're also just going to make them a tea. <laughs> Tabitha and Blake work for a not-for-profit that serves inner-city clients here in Edmonton. What the twosome do is less extraordinary than where they do it. This is not a community drop-in center or a shelter. Their office is inside the Stanley A. Milner Library, the flagship Edmonton Public Library, on the south side of Sir Winston Churchill Square in a part of town where the homeless population has doubled in just four years. Tabitha and Blake are part of a very unusual pilot program. This is one of the first libraries in North America to go big on providing social and other health care services. Yeah, we've been here since August 9 of last year. So yeah, we have a bit of a client kind of caseload, informal though. So we try to like make sure we have a space for people that feel safe, that they can come to. And you have a kettle going. Why do you have a kettle going? Uh, this is just like by donation and we just try to make sure that we have this. But it just gives people an opportunity to just like talk to you like over a cup of coffee or something because like these services can have barriers and stuff like that so it's just one way to make people feel comfortable and things like that. Welcoming and nurturing. Yeah. There's nothing more nurturing than offering somebody food. It goes a long way you know you don't feel rushed when somebody's like oh I'll make you coffee right and then people can tell you about other things. Sometimes nurse sometimes barista. <laughs> Triple this is double. And sometimes librarian. I'm not joking. Tabitha has a Master's of Library and Information Sciences. She used to volunteer with the library, delivering books to readers. There's always gaps in information, so we have like resource pamphlets in here. We have food pamphlets, we have sexual health pamphlets, we have pregnancy pamphlets. Tabitha, Blake, plus social workers and others see vulnerable clients here in this small suite of rooms tucked onto the side of the library's third floor beside some bookshelves. A room down a hallway to the right is stocked full of medical and other supplies for people in need. It's really empty because it's been a little busy. <laughs> oh, this is our med bin. So we have Tylenol, Advil, STI-REx. We also have bubble pipes. Sometimes we have nasal naloxone, but mostly we have needle naloxone. Overdose prevention and harm reduction supplies. Over-the-counter remedies like Tylenol. Wound care supplies. A lot is donated, but sometimes Tabitha uses her own money to pay for necessities. 
Most of the clients are drop-ins. Tabitha and Blake see them in these offices Tuesday to Friday till 7 p.m. Each morning and afternoon they work here. They strap on backpacks and do rounds inside and outside the library. So tell me about the clients you see here. We see like everyone and anyone. We see youth. We've had like people as young as 14 years of age to somebody yesterday who I seen who's been houseless for 14 years, who also is an indigenous person who is like just expressing how difficult that is. Some people just come to us for like a tea or coffee. They might be recently housed. We spend time with people who are only engaging in substance use or some people are only engaging in sex work or both. We're also here to support if somebody's maybe just having a bad day or a health issue. Our clientele can really be anybody who enters the library space or is around the library within our walking distance. How old's the oldest person you've, you've seen here? There's somebody who I also know really well, and I've known her since December of 2020, but she's born in 1950. She's the oldest person I've helped. <laughs> but there's a lot of like elderly and folks who are houseless. So yeah, there's a huge portion of people who are like 45 to like into 50s, early 60s that are experiencing like precarity of housing and stuff like that. What do you do for people who use opioids? What kinds of services do you offer? We offer naloxone to them. We also offer like the full availability of clean supplies. So you've got full spectrum naloxone kits, harm reduction kits. Yeah. Do you have Suboxone? We don't have Suboxone, so we have to operate within that outreach mindset. We're kind of like stationary outreach because, yeah, we have a spot here, but we're still out and about. And one of our main purposes is still to be on call for opiate poisonings. How often have you administered naloxone here? Uh, I think that our one of our highest months was like 11. Um, but yeah, that was 11's our, a lot. That was our highest month. And keep in mind that we're only here four days a week from 11 to 7. I have been working as a nurse in this area since 2020. And I'm like, I wouldn't want to count the number of times I've administered naloxone in a work volunteer or in my life capacity. So a lot. <laughs> I once uh, interviewed someone who reckoned he'd given it at least a thousand times. Yeah, I just wouldn't want to count. Yeah. And the problem's getting worse. Yeah, it's, yeah, people are struggling. We have a mental health crisis on the third floor. Before we get started, Tabitha and Blake get an emergency call. They would like for us to insert ourselves immediately. Okay. We're just going to go to the third floor. This is how it goes? Yeah. Just walk fast or run? What's the call about? They just said it's a mental health crisis. She's apparently suicidal, and the, one of the library assistants is having to work with her, and they've asked that we handle it. So we're supposed to like kind of insert ourselves into the situation. We find a woman who looks around 50 years old sitting quietly at a table. She told the librarian she wants to harm herself. Tabitha and Blake talk to the woman privately while I stand a discreet distance away. It takes the twosome less than 10 minutes to size up the situation and diffuse it, all while maintaining the whisper quiet you expect in a library. So Tabitha, what was that all about? So there was a client that was just in tears and crying and um, just the library staff's been trying to engage with the client, but yeah, I don't think she's in a space to engage, so... I just encourage to give a little bit of space. I think she needs some space. Um, sometimes you just need to cry in the library. <laughs> How unique is a service like this? It's I can imagine <laughs> a lot of other libraries, they just ask that person to move on, to leave. Yeah. 
Um, I think we have the benefit of sometimes providing a little bit of that, like, what is a crisis and what is not. So, like, just because you're crying in the library doesn't mean you're having a crisis. How much do you uh, educate the staff to be sensitive to these issues, to, to, to be on the lookout? Yeah, we Tabitha in particular does like a lot of education with staff about, you know, what is an emergency, what how it's appropriate to respond, how how it's best not to respond. Tabitha and Blake carry on with their rounds. On a typical day, they see 40 to 60 clients. Our library, like our inside library round is just like we go on every floor. So we just try to like walk the library, see if we see any of the clients that regularly interact with us. And then, yeah, we try to go outside and in and around those areas. And if you see a client, what do you do? Well, they might say hi to us. We might say hi to them. Sometimes you see overdoses. Sometimes you don't. Sometimes you see people in distress. Sometimes you might just start chatting with somebody, but you notice they have a wound. So then you're like, hey, do you want a bear paw? Also, how about that amputation of your toes? Do you want some (laughs) Band-Aids? And then slowly introduce the fact that you could maybe clean the wound for them and things like that. So... Every interaction is a little different. I'll never forget that interaction we had when I first started working at the library. And there was Tabitha and I were just getting to know each other as like workers and as people. And we're leaving the library to go on around and we found that gentleman who had that terrible hand wound. Yeah, he had a a wound that was down to the bone on his hand. Um, But he was also potentially under the influence of a substance or potentially just having some like mental health symptoms and he was dragging his open wound on the ground on the, on the pavement and shirtless so and kind of yelling and i was like let's probably see what we can do helps to have two people yes yeah it really does, <laughs> yeah, it really does. we work with the staff but we also work with security as well security is critical to deal with agitated clients as well as those who overdose on the premises In 2022, there were 71 opioid poisonings here, 29 so far this year. Tabitha says everyone here, including security and the librarians, are trained to approach clients quietly and respectfully. Good for the clients and good for all the others who come here to take out books and enjoy the other amenities this library has to offer. The people who work here think a library is the perfect place to serve both. They call libraries the public's living room. One of very few indoor public spaces where everyone is welcome. No exceptions. Hello. I'm Brian. Sharon. Here's Sharon. It takes some special people to make that vision work. Okay, so hi, my name is Sharon Day. I'm the Executive Director of Customer Experience with Edmonton Public Library. Just inside the main entrance, I meet Sharon in front of a giant digital wall two stories high. Today, it shows a coral wreath that looks like a scene from Finding Nemo. (laughs) Almost everyone who walks in stops to gaze at it. Sharon tells me about the total revamp that enables this library to serve some of Edmonton's most vulnerable people while opening its doors to more than three-quarters of a million visitors per year. We've completely revitalized this space with this new vision to be this, like, you know, really vibrant hub within the downtown core, within the Arts District, so a ton of community engagement sessions and through that process with how we envisioned our new space. So a lot of the features that you'll see here when you take a look around are coming out of that. Our outreach services, we have a a culinary kitchen, our Thunderbird house around the corner here is our um, Indigenous gathering space. So all all the services that you see here today were part of this huge engagement process, um, but it all goes back to who we are as an organization. So 
Image Public Library is a community-led organization. Everything that we do um, is based on what we see as the need in our community. That's the grand vision. Part of that vision is a new role for security. Sharon says enforcement, while important, has been de-emphasized. You may have noticed when you came in the front door, we have a little bit of a little podium there, and like the intention is always that we have a security there, but also welcoming. So almost like a concierge. Concierge. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's like yeah, yeah. welcome to the library, but also people know that um, you know this is a place to to be on good behavior. Hmm. Yeah. Would you like to take a look at the sure. kitchen? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. A kitchen where they teach how to make meals, cutting edge areas for fashion, filmmaking, even gaming. These may not be top of mind for people who live on the street. For them, there's ready access to housing, financial supports, and other social assistance. But Sharon says it's important that all of these facilities are available to anyone who drops by. This is where everything that you see out in the community, you will see in the public library because this is where people come to be, to connect. A public library is a connector. We connect our community to the services and the resources and, the, and everything that they need to really live like a fully functioning, vibrant, exciting life. And so um, people are comfortable coming into our spaces. We welcome all people. They're not always comfortable seeking supports outside where it might, there might be a stigma involved in going to other kinds of support services. So bringing the support services into our space where the people are allows us to make that connection between them. Um, actually, we're just going to come around the corner here so you can see. Free drop-in single-session counseling, no appointments needed. So this is an example, yeah. So this, is our Robert this was the first public library in Canada to have social workers on site. Sharon says they listened to community members who asked for it and found a way to make it happen. We do a lot of work with partners. So we're not, they're not our staff. We're not paying them to be here. We operate leanly. Librarians are very good at being frugal and making the most of our money, right? We're well-supported, thankfully. Some of the amazing services you see come from fundraising. We make the best use of our dollars we really possibly can. But you can. have to wash your pennies. Absolutely, yes. And also only asking for what we, mean, we need and then being really sure to make sure that we're using the money the best we possibly can. We'll be right back. I've reported other people's stories for a long time, confronting people in power. But behind this broadcast voice, I've hidden my greatest secret. I was in an abusive marriage. It lasted a year, but it changed my life. Part of me always blamed myself for what happened, and I've lived with the shame. So many of us live like this. It's time we change that. I'm Anna Maria Tremonti. Welcome to Paradise is my story. Available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. You're listening to White Coat Blackheart. This week, a visit to the Stanley A. Milner Library, one of the first public libraries in North America to provide overdose treatment and prevention plus social supports for vulnerable people. But it's not the only one. A new report from the Canadian Urban Institute says more and more Canada's libraries find themselves as the triage centres on main streets and downtowns and need more funding for social supports. The Milner Library has three social workers. What you have for breakfast? I'm just going to catch your audio. Um, just a granola bar. Coffee, chai latte. I I tried coffee, but my uh, cream was curdled. So <laughs> I met up with one of them. Well, my name is Charlene Johnson. I am a social worker at the Edmonton Public Library. I have been here going on two years as of January 2024. And yeah, our role is outreach. We service the customers of the library. 
And so what we do is we connect them to resources is the main part of our job. So what do you think of working in a library? Is it better to work in a library? Because you've worked in other environments, haven't you? I've worked in other environments. I've worked in the community a lot. I've worked with uh, nonprofit agencies. And I would say that it is beneficial, I guess, to the community that there are social workers here because so many people in the community need support but don't know where to go. And if they're already here accessing um, the library and connecting, then it's a good place to start off. It's like starting in their living room, their comfort zone. So it's actually, we're going to reach a wider variety of the population. And that's an interesting point because, you know, you, you could reach people by walking on the streets because that's, that's what some uh, uh, social service programs do. Do you see more people of the kinds of people you could potentially serve here than you would elsewhere? I would say I see more people here because for one, I'm meeting them, I, like I said, where they're at, but it's also like the barriers are taken down. The intimidation is not there. The good thing about the library is that, you know, it is a comfortable place where they, where people don't feel like they need to leave or they need to buy anything. It's just them. And it's completely voluntary. So they are coming to us when they need services. And what we have embedded in our program is kind of a legacy program where if you've been our client once, you can always be our clients. So tell me the things you're able to do for clients here. Well, you know what? One of the main things that we focus on is servicing, I guess, clients, we can say, who have the most barriers and who are the most vulnerable. So that will be starting at things like ID. So someone could come in, they don't have access to services. So we start with even getting them their ID. So then they can open the bank account so they can apply for services, income support. Also, if they have any sort of challenges that they want to work on, like substance use, um, getting access to like mental health help, or even accessing a physician because they have health issues. Because you, you do see clients who have lived here or maybe they've migrated here from someplace else. They've lived here most of their lives or for many years and they don't have ID. And if you don't have ID, you can't get anything. You can't get anything. You have to prove you're a person, even though you're standing there talking before you can get access to things. Can you think of a story where you helped somebody uh, get their ID, uh, become a person uh, that the government recognizes? Yes. So a person that I'm currently even still working with, when I first met him, he didn't have any ID. He didn't have a home. He struggled with substance use and some mental health issues. So what I had done from there is the first thing we have to do even before the ID is kind of build relationship, build rapport. So then they know that like I have their best interests in mind. So we got him ID. We got him his birth certificate. And then it actually, from there, it took a while to get his photo ID because when you don't have a home, you don't have a safe place to keep your ID. So he misplaced his birth certificate a few times and I kept it the second time. And then um, getting his ID, we got his ID, but then 
you know, might have been stolen again. So it takes a while. And then finally, when we got his ID and everything's in place, then we applied for income. And that was like six months after I met him. And that changed a lot for him. So he's able to now like buy himself coffee and look for a place to live and access like our, our housing program here. So then got a housing worker assigned to him through Homer Trust and they were able to search for permanent housing for him. Now he's not permanently housed yet, but he is in a transitional housing facility. He has a roof over his head. Yes, exactly. And that changed his, it kind of changed his life. Like he, he wasn't ready for it, but it, you can tell he's a lot happier and looking forward to changing his life forever. We've talked about the good stuff and some inspiring stuff. What worries you the most? Well, our winters worry me when um, the people that I work with do primarily live in tents and there aren't a lot of safe places they can go to feel warmth where they won't be removed because they're trespassing or, or there's just not a lot of spaces that are open 24 hours a day. So it worries me when the winter comes and the people I'm working with aren't housed. And the population I'm working with are usually older, as in like in their 50s, 60s, 70s. So it's, they can have health issues on top of it. But I believe that everybody deserves a safe, warm place to sleep at night. You know, this is a safe, warm place to be during the day, day. but not at night. Yes. So that's what worries you. Yes. That's my main worry. Charlene's worry is also on the minds of Tabitha and Blake. Like postal workers, their daily trek in search of people who overdose outside is year-round. And you do this year-round, including when the weather is cold? Yes. Minus 40. I have some cute pictures of us. With frozen eyelashes. Frozen eyelashes. Yeah, but we do it in all weather, rain, whatever. You just wear the right clothes because people are there, so you are there regardless of the weather. We kind of like check in the loading areas and things like that. So that's kind of what we're looking for. Yesterday we had somebody who was laying on the tracks and they had a used straight pipe and foil in their pocket and so was under the influence of something that they had just smoked and she was definitely not fully alert or anything like that but we were able to just kind of slowly sit her up, help her gather her belongings. She had a cart with her, helped her sit on a step so everything was okay like her breathing could be supported even just by her positioning and then we just sat with her for yeah like probably 40 minutes just until she was like alert enough to then go on her day i move people a lot (laughs) the example i was going to use is one time we went on a round and there was a gentleman who had a drug poisoning in an area that was about two feet wide so tabitha jumped into the planter and took this probably 200 and some pound man and lifted him out of the area because he needed airway support and he also needed naloxone, but we physically couldn't access his body. And she heaved him right out of there. It was amazing. I don't know. So you just kind of see people in those positions and we, we were able to reverse his overdose, but he told us that he was trying to hide in that spot because he didn't want to live anymore. And so like sometimes it's just also that, like you reverse a poisoning and then you have to be there for the person for whatever feelings that they're feeling. And, and you handed them over to the paramedics? No. Um, most people honestly don't want most paramedic don't. care. Yeah. So that gentleman um, declined and then we just stay with the person and talk to them until they don't want us to anymore. This library's success as a welcome place for vulnerable people is only partly thanks to the guiding philosophy and innovative facilities.
It's people like Tabitha Plessick who make this unusual model for healthcare delivery succeed. What made you want to get a master's in library science? Uh, I volunteered for the library for five years, and then I was very interested in how people were accessing information and trying to support people, like nurses, um, in, in accessing information. But then I just became interested in like health research in general, and that's what I do now on the side. Hmm. And here you are working at a library. Yeah, kind of funny. <laughs> That's weird, isn't it? it? It is a little weird, but it's a good fit, I think, because I understand libraries, but I also understand nursing, and I also understand houselessness. Why is the library the best place, the most optimal place to, to meet the clients that you meet? It's not the best or most optimal place. It just is a place where people are coming to. Um, our municipality encourages people to come to the library as a warming space, but also it's a place where people can access internet for free, which is really important. We do have obviously other outreach services. My, my dad was houseless for a long time and passed away of an opiate poisoning. And I'm sorry. It's okay. Well, it's not okay, but we had long conversations about how much better he did when he had access to a cell phone. Social isolation is really hard for people. It's hard to attend appointments. And so if you don't have a working phone, having internet is so important so i think that like there are lots of things that draw people to a library if you are experiencing precarity of housing or if you use substances in general not that like this is the place you're supposed to go to use substances but you know the places that you are allowed to go use them are less and less all the time and so people just end up here i can see it affects you uh yeah obviously i care about people you know Blake had her first experience earlier this year, seeing her first overdose of somebody she knows, and it never gets easier. You get better at compartmentalizing it, but you see people every day, you care about them, you know about their life. The person that we've seen have an opiate poisoning, you know, he's part of the child family services system, he's just turned 32, he has eight siblings, he was taken away from his mother when he was less than one years old, never met his mother, birth father died, and we watched him overdose, and then three meters away we watched somebody that we've never met overdose. And that person is such a kind person. Um, we have a picture of him celebrating his birthday with us just uh, on TRC day of all days. but. Yeah, of course, like, you're not going to discount all of the reasons why that person came to use opiates. And, yeah, it is really, really sad. And as somebody who has lost a parent and spent nine hours in the ICU alone with my dad and had to watch him and hold his hand when he was extubated, it's sad. Um, but it's a really important thing to be there for people because... Um, even within the recovery model and the compassionate care model that we're trying to implement in Alberta, if the client that we're talking about that we love so dearly passes away, he can't go to treatment. So if we don't give him access to naloxone, if we don't give him access to clean needles or clean inhalation items, people overdose just from needing to use an item to use the uh, medication of their choice to deal with their trauma, deal with their physical pain, mental pain. They need those items. So yeah, it's, it's really incredibly important, and it is really impactful on us every day. Every person we see, you hope that you see them again the next day. The thing is, what Tabitha and Blake are doing at the library is part of a pilot program whose funding expires this month. Precarious funding for an incredibly useful program that helps people who live in precarious circumstances. That's our show this week. Our email address is whitecoat at cbc.ca. 
If you like this episode, please give us a rating and review wherever you listen. This week's edition was produced by senior producer Colleen Ross and Stephanie Dubois with help from Samir Chabra and Isabel Gallant. Our digital producer was Adam Killick and our digital writer is Jason Vermesh. That's medicine from my side of the gurney. I'm Brian Goldman. See you next week. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.